You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 4th of September 2018 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller on today's show. In the values that it promotes, in the manner that it operates, and in the impact that it has on African countries, FOCAC refutes the view that a new colonialism is taking hold in Africa, as our detractors would have us believe. China tells Cyril Ramaphosa and other African leaders how much it will be investing there this year should Africa be disappointed. My guests Stephanie Bolson and Michael Binion will be discussing this and the day's other top stories including the New Yorker's decision to uninvite Steve Bannon to its festival, French President Emmanuel Macron's rearrangement of his cabinet table and how sorry are our panel to have missed the world's largest trade fair for garden implements. That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle 24. And welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Stephanie Bolton, London correspondent for Die Welt, and Michael Binion, foreign affairs specialist for The Times. Welcome both. And we will start in Beijing and the latest gathering of the Forum on Africa-China Cooperation, which is much more interesting than it sounds. FOCAC, and they do need to work on that acronym, is a triennial wingding which gathers the many African recipients of China's largesse with the senior leadership of the Chinese Communist Party. At this year's conclave, Chinese President Xi Jinping announced announced a package of investment aid and loans worth 60 billion US dollars, which on the one hand is a fabulous sum of money, yet on the other is the same amount pledged at the previous FOCAC in 2015. The question is left open whether China is somewhat losing interest in Africa or merely maintaining it. Um, Michael, first of all, I guess if you adjust it for three years of inflation, this is a slightly lesser investment. Is it actually a step back? No, I don't think so. I think it's more consolidation. Uh, you can't simply throw money, more and more money, at uh, Africa and hope that it will bring more rewards every time. I think China has now started a lot of very big construction projects and other things, and uh, it needs to simply maintain where it is at the moment. doesn't need a new round of spending. And also, I think there's a certain eye about uh, how much China itself can afford to spend all that money, and, of course, there are the accusations that if it gives too much money to Africa, it is tying Africa to its own debt indebtedness. And that, of course, is a big criticism that it's a sort of neo-colonialist way of making African countries uh, in debt so that they can't pay back. The Chinese may know they can't pay back. And instead, they grant concessions such as uh, military opportunities or bases or mineral rights or something like that. Uh, Stephanie, we heard in the introduction to the program a clip there of President Cyril Ramaphosa of South Africa explicitly refuting the idea that uh, in accepting this investment from China, Africa has effectively traded one uh, colonialism for another or one form of colonialism for another. I is he right? I have in my time met many Africans uh, who think that's pretty much exactly what's happened. Well, you, you can't, can't really deny that, but because simply China has been, and that's for a very long time, the main country that was uh, um, investing and interested in Africa and all over Africa. And um, every time you just had uh, <clears throat> the German Chancellor going there or the British Prime Minister was just in Africa, and they, they get there and they somehow um, 
turn around and say, oh, actually, it's very little what we invest here in comparison to the Chinese. So German industry per year invests something like one billion. So in comparison to a three-year plan of 60 billion, it's absolutely nothing. And that's the continent that's actually in, in front of, of uh, the European doorstep. But Yeah, of course, you, you could you could argue, is this a form of new colonialism? And as Michael just said, that might lead then to a dependence of these states further down the road if they can't play uh, can't pay their debts back. So it's um, but it's 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 a very it's between a rock and a hard place because obviously these countries desperately need infrastructure, they Indeed. need investment. So who else should they go with? Well, Michael, China is now Africa's largest trading partner, which is is an extraordinary factoid, especially since, as Stephanie correctly points out, you would think it is right there as far as, as Africa is concerned. Is there an element to which there's a, been a slightly cynical approach to this uh, by, the, by Europe especially, basically looking at Africa and thinking if China wants it that badly, they're welcome to it? Yes, but also the Europeans are trying to have it both ways. I mean, they are criticizing China for a neo-colonialist enterprise, but in fact they would have done the same, and they did do the same for hundreds of years in the past until uh, the Second World War. Uh, it was uh, the playground of the Western colonial powers. I mean, it, it, most of Africa was owned by uh, European countries, uh, and I think it's uh, pretty unfair to criticize China for giving aid that to a large extent, is not politically tied to China. It is in infrastructure projects which Af Africa desperately needs. Yes, I mean, of course, there are a million Chinese now resident in Africa, and they don't always mix very easily with the local population. But uh, the two sides, you know, are far apart. They don't know each other. There isn't a long history of involvement. So I think uh, the European criticism or Western criticism of China is to some extent sour grapes. Um, Stephanie, we have seen uh, quite a few world-turned-upside-down uh, manifestations of Xi Jinping thought uh, in the last couple of years, most notably when it was the president of China who turned up at Davos trying to sort of prop up the international order of free trade. Uh, but in his speech to, to Fokak, he also uh, seems to be trying to position China as a leader uh, in the fight against climate change and desertification and for the protection of wildlife. These were all things he was explicitly very keen on. Um, is that, I mean, on the one hand, I guess, if, it, if, if we're to interpret this at face value, it's quite encouraging, especially given the role the Chinese market plays uh, in the unprotecting of African wildlife. But is he serious about this or is this him saying the sort of thing he knows he's supposed to say? No, I think in part the Chinese are really serious about it. For example, if you look at the use of electric cars in China, simply because the, the cities like Beijing and other multi-million people, population, cities, they, they cannot live anymore. There's such a high pollution. They have to find new ways of um, having cars and how they, how they uh, <coughs> um, have their industries working. So I think there is... Um, There is a strategy, a long-term strategy, as you can see with Africa, but also in terms of environment. Of course, you shouldn't think this is now the, the really big green state, not at all, because you see so many uh, really disastrous decisions they've been doing in the last years on, on environmental projects. But And, and also, there is, I mean, we're seeing things shifting because of the um, policy of Donald Trump of trade wars or trying to be far more protectionist 
than the US was before. You see now new alliances coming up between, for example, Europe and China. And now somehow China has become the new blue-eyed boys for the Europeans and especially also for the German government. Just a final quick thought on this one, Michael. A, a notable non-attendee at FOCAC is King Mswati III of Eswatini, as Swaziland is now known for reasons surpassing understanding. That is Africa's last, uh, dip- Taiwan's rather, last diplomatic partner in Africa. Uh, do we Are we going to see China trying to pick that one off as well, do you think? The, the, the Swazi so far seem pretty, pretty dogged about this and determined to stick by Taiwan. Well, of course, uh, the Swazis now have a whip hand over Taiwan because they will say to them, look, if you can give us the kind of aid that China may offer us if we change allegiance, we'll stick with you. And of course, Taiwan will probably come up with some massive aid package to Swaziland, though probably not the best place to put it as they have a somewhat uh, autocratic form of government. Uh, the Chinese, I think, are happy to leave just one as a sort of example, say, look what you're, you know, look what you're missing out. Uh, if you want to persist in your uh, strange allegiance... Uh, that's up to you. Okay, well, let's look now at New York, specifically at the New Yorker Festival, due to occur October 5th to 7th. There was a measure of surprise and bewilderment when it was announced that among the guests booked by the impeccable liberal journal was Steve Bannon, intellectual architect of Trumpism and both advocate for and argument against white supremacy. Bannon was due to be interviewed on stage by New Yorker editor David Remnick, who would undoubtedly have run rings around him. However, several other guests announced that if Bannon was appearing, they were not and Remnick has now reconsidered and Bannon now has another opportunity to appear on dozens of media outlets complaining that he's being silenced. Um, Stephanie, first of all, it's your literary festival, for example. Do you book Steve Bannon? Yeah, of course. Of course I would uh, book Steve Bannon if I was to decide and I think it's wrong to then take the invitation back like the New Yorker did because... and also of the people who were actually due to be with him on the panel to say I'm not going to be with Steve Bannon on a panel because I think that's exactly what those people want they want to be seen as 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 victims and now as you just said he has far more channels a much bigger platform to say whatever he thinks our world should be like than he would have had if he had been invited and also if the people who'd been or supposedly were going to be with him on the panel they could have exposed his lies because a lot of this is lies and i'm saying this because i i had a a, a story to do last week which was on the back of the what happened in eastern germany in in chemnitz and <clears throat> there was the um the deputy head of the AFD, which is the right-wing extremist party in Germany, was on the BBC in the Today programme. It's a very prestigious programme in the morning. And the host, who's one of the best hosts I think the BBC has, Michelle Hussein, she was really taking her on. And that Beatrix von Storch, this German right-wing AFD woman, she just came out with lies after lies. And then she got stuck in her own statistics who didn't make mathematically sense anymore and I think this is the way you have to take people like Steve Bannon and others on But there is a difference Michael is there not between an elected official as a member of AFD is and someone like Steve Bannon who no longer has a role in government I can, I'm, I'm genuinely not sure what I think about this uh, yeah. on the grounds that I, yeah, I, I totally see the argument Stephanie's making for, yeah, you, you confront these people's lies, you sort of demonstrate that they're talking nonsense uh, and, and hope that that has an impact. But also, for someone like Bannon in particular, who no longer has any particular role in government, you're not obliged uh, to open up 
your stage to him. Are you? I guess I ask you the same question at the the Michael Binion Literary Festival. <laughs> Michael, do do you put Steve Bannon well, on the bill? Well, for a start, he's an absolutely unsuitable guest for a literary festival. I shouldn't imagine he's ever read a book in his life <laughs> or has any idea of any author uh, apart from himself. Uh, and I think uh, it's a bizarre choice if you're focusing on culture and literacy uh, and literature. He's the last person who would have anything to say of any meaning. But if you invited him, if you did invite him to such a, a, a gathering, it's even stupider to then disinvite well, him. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, th- uh, I think that's very weak and very silly. And it, of course, it plays into the whole idea of no platforming. This is the the the, the scourge of most American campuses at the moment. That uh, anyone that uh, is thought to be uh, able to give even the slightest offence to those looking to take offence will be no platform. But the, the, thing, the counter-argument to that, which I'm increasingly sympathetic to, is that if you look at the cases of not... Steve Bannon is in a peculiar position because he clearly is a figure of current import to the current political landscape. He was clearly at least part of the reason that Donald Trump is President of the United States. But a lot of the people who get no platformed are just professional attention seekers. If, if no one's being outraged by them they don't really exist outrage is their applause it's their business model it's the only reason for existing they have if you take that away from them they vanish well that's certainly true of of some speakers i mean it's true on both sides there are people uh, who thrive on giving offense and there are also people who are determined to take offense whatever the situation now i don't think this is the case with bannon because i think a lot of people genuinely have reason to be offended by what he will say On the other hand, I think demolishing his argument in public is probably much better. But on the other hand, again, it's difficult because he would thrive on that as well. He wouldn't mind being defeated. He would just say, oh, it's it's nonsense. It's fake news. It's untrue. Uh, Listen to me. And he would go away just as self-confident and cocky and still go on advising right-wing movements throughout the world of how to do things. I mean, I think he's a very dangerous presence. And denying him the oxygen of publicity is probably quite a good way of dealing with him. Uh, Stephanie, Steve Bannon did appear, I think, earlier this week or late last week on an Australian current affairs programme, Four Corners. He was given a fairly exemplary going over uh, and, in fairness to him, does seem to have taken it quite sportingly. Um, That, I'm sure, is what would have happened had he shared a stage with David Remnick. But is there actually any value to it, though, beyond uh, creating controversy and attention for whoever puts him on a stage? Because it's not like at this point we don't know what Steve Bannon thinks about anything. Yeah, but what is left then? I mean, if you if you say, well, we do not want this person in public, uh, we do not want to confront him. It's also it's it's hard. It's very tough, and you you got to be really well prepared because mm. you have to have your facts um, <clears throat> with you. You have to. In- counter whatever he says with with well facts he will then say that that's that's uh, that's fake news or whatever but i mean I, seriously what what is left um because if you if you don't give him a platform what is happening, it just goes into what we call the echo chambers in the social media, and they are there anyway. So if you want to defend democratic values and what you say the liberal world stands for, you have to 
confront them con constantly and permanently. But, I but, don't see another way out. But would a confrontation like this have any actual positive upshot in the real world? Because if you're somebody who subscribes to the, the general worldview of Steve Bannon, you're probably not going to take a terrific amount of interest in the New Yorker Festival anyway. Uh, and if Steve Bannon gets given a going over by somebody like David Remnick, um, I don't think that's really going to change the mind of any Bannon fan or Trump voter, is it? Yeah, but I think it's still important that um, you are right. I mean, the people who, who will... A, those who like Steve Bannon will, are not very likely to listen to it. But even even so, I think it's just for for his opponents important to see the thinking and expose his thinking. Because otherwise, you just continue completely giving him his reality. I, I think, again, what's left? What other tool do you have? You can just ignore them, can't you, Michael? Can't you just decide that Mr. Bannon or somebody in his position is both a buffoon and a fool and I'm not really interested in what he thinks, therefore there's plenty of other people we could put on a stage at our festival? I think that's a pretty good strategy, yes. I think that might... I mean, I see Stephanie's argument. It's a good argument that you have to confront these people and you have to nail their lies. But, in fact, simply ignoring him means that he is confined just to the social media people who, who follow him and will, will listen to every uh, piece of nonsense that he utters. Ignoring him uh, in the mainstream, because you can ignore him now, he's not a figure of political weight anymore. He's quarrelled with Trump. He's still the ideologue behind Trump. But, I mean, he no longer pulls the strings in the White House. So just shutting him out and pretending he doesn't exist would probably uh, be what he deserved. But he's going around in Europe and he's making friends with all kind of alt-right, right-wing people in Germany, in Hungary, in Italy, everywhere. So you can't escape him anyway. So there is a constant platform for him and you, can't, you cannot uh, kind of... Um exclude him from, from, from the media and the mainstream because he will be there anyway. Well, I wonder how many in Europe are going to listen to him for more than half an hour. I mean, it's true. He has been trying to advise all these groups in certainly Italy and in Hungary. But I think they're into their own uh, course in any way, in any case. And I don't think Steve Bannon will really play a significant role there. Okay, well, we are going to take a short break now. You're listening to Midori House with me, Andrew Muller, along with Michael Binion and Stephanie Bolson. Coming up next, Macron rearranges his cabinet table. What is it like to be a city forgotten and rediscovered? Monocle Films travels to Gunsan in South Korea to bear witness to its urban revival. Here, natives and newcomers are creating quirky bars, art spaces and a bright future for this charming coastal outpost. Gunsan, building on the past, playing now in the film section at monocle.com. You are back with Midori House with me, Andrew Muller. Still with me are Stephanie Bolson and Michael Binion. Now, outside France, President Emmanuel Macron is generally pretty popular, at least among those seeking some reassurance that voters, when presented with an apparently competent centrist, will still choose that over the nativist Yahoo option. Inside France, it's a different story. Macron has not escaped the fate of his recent predecessors, whereby whatever goodwill gets them into the LSE palace evaporates swiftly post-election. Macron's approval rating has tanked to 31%, a reminder that Donald Trump is polling circa 40. Accordingly, Macron is somewhat reshuffling his cabinet, a move he has been bounced into by the abrupt on-air resignation of his environment minister. Um, Stephanie, is it the case that it basically doesn't really matter what you do if you're president of France or who you are if you're president of France? The French are going to end up hating you. 
Well, it is it is one of the toughest jobs you can have in Europe, I think, because you, we've been we've been looking at this at France now for decades and decades, and it always ends up with a new president coming in. There's a lot of enthusiasm. He's very popular, and then there are strikes. So the people go on the street, and they do not want any reforms of the pension system, any reforms of the uh, of the labor market, and it it very very quickly, almost with all of them. The, the, the magic is gone. And the same has happened to Macron. Now, Macron, of course, he is and still is, I think, the blue-eyed boy of, of Europe, mm -hmm. especially of Brussels. He's also now Angela Merkel's best friend because it's, it's very funny when you see them now at European uh, summits. They always do their press conferences together. Um, they always show up together. So it's, it's kind of... Um, there was so much hope connected to uh, Emmanuel Macron. But as you say, the polls are down to 31, 34% of popularity because there is nothing after a year he really has achieved. And on top of it, he had a couple of corruption cases in his own party. And one of the most popular ministers has just resigned because he said, I, I, can't, I can't implement any of the things I wanted to do. So that's been, that's been a, real, um, a real shock for Macron that... Uh, Uh, the environment minister left. Uh, Michael, is, is, is this negative response to Macron in France a response to his policies? And like all French presidents do, as Stephanie points out, they, they arrive in office with all these great plans uh, of reform and then find the streets of Paris are full of people. Uh, well, they can't dig up the cobblestones anymore because they paved over the roads to stop them doing that. But people who would dig up the cobblestones if there were cobblestones still to be dug and nothing gets done and you know you, you end up polling at 30%. Though that if course is a rating that Francois Hollande would have given several teeth for. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Hollande actually was one of the most successful in getting reforms through. He snuck them in. He pretended to be a socialist uh, and he got through a lot of, uh, he tended uh, to start off a, a quasi-communist. He brought communists into the government and he got some economic reforms through. The problem is that everybody knows that a wide-ranging series of reforms is absolutely vital if France is to remain economically competitive and if it is to continue enjoy, enjoying the standard of living that it actually can no longer afford. So these things have to be done. And the reason, of course, that uh, Macron can't do the other things, such as uh, more for the environment, is there is no money. Uh, France does not have this unlimited wealth uh, that would allow generous social benefits, retirement for railwaymen at 51 or something absurd, uh, and the kind of uh, privileges that a lot of people have taken for granted. And that is the problem. They must and should no longer take them for granted. But to get that through the ordinary citizen's head is extremely difficult. And it doesn't help when you have a somewhat monarchical and aloof manner, as Macron does. And the French here are also Uh, in two minds about that. They rather like the sense of grandeur, the sort of de Gaulle figure who is uh, uh, a, a quasi-monarch But when it comes from a man of uh, 40, they think it's just over the top. Well, I was just going to say, a, a Frenchman with a somewhat aloof manner, imagine such a thing. Um, <laughs> Stephanie, is the response to him, though, is it about his policies or the policies he wants to implement, or is it a reaction to him personally? Is there something about Macron the man that French voters uh, are starting to uh, rebel against slightly? Do they think he's a bit full of himself? I think... 
first of all, it was first the first thing that uh, the policies that at the end of the day people do not want. There was a lot of hope connected to him and people actually saying, and I spoke to French friends who said, yeah, there is, we really need reforms. But as ever, when it touched their own wallet, <laughs> suddenly they didn't want these reforms Everybody anymore. else needs to be reformed. <clears throat> Fair enough. Yes, exactly. Um, but then there was, over the summer, there were a couple of stories, like, for example, the story of him um, putting a pool in the presidential residence in, in, in the Cote d'Azur or wherever it is. And that, of course, evoked very much the stereotypes of those on the and on the top who just take the tax hard earned taxpayers money and will just build for themselves a pool though i had heard people saying well it's a really small pool and it's only 80000 euro it's not it's not really such a such a big business but that fueled into the image of him being arrogant, he can't connect with people, he actually claimed to be the listening guy, but he actually doesn't listen, he's on a completely different planet, he does all these nice speeches everywhere in Athens and in, at the Sorbonne, but in the end he's an intellectual and he doesn't understand what everyday, I mean what normal people need. So um, yeah, it seems like there's now a growing gap between the population and, and their president. Okay, well, finally tonight, uh, we go to Cologne, which is today wrapping up Spoga and Gaffa, the world's largest gardening trade fair. More than 2,000 exhibitors have gathered flogging outdoor furniture, garden implements, and the cutting edge in lawnmowers. And yes, I did work on that one for some time. Uh, Michael, is, is, is this your idea of an exciting weekend? Well, if they're only uh, exhibiting the implements to do the gardening, that's a bit dull. Uh, <laughs> I would like to see some actual gardens or some plants or the things you actually use these implements so for. So more of a Chelsea flower show. Yeah, more, more something with, with the real, real flowers, the, the smell of the earth. Though some of these implements are rather fun. I mean, you can waste literally uh, thousands of pounds or dollars or, or euros or whatever on these new implements, which in the end, just plain muscle and a spade will do just as well. Uh, but it would be fun to go and look at them. Uh, the idea that, I mean, this is an enormous market. Gardening is a worldwide phenomenon, certainly in the richer parts of the world. And the uh, amount of money people are prepared to spend, and I have to say waste, on buying plants from nurseries they go home with every week, they put them in the ground, they look lovely for two weeks, and then they die, and they go back and buy some more. I know, no, it's I'm I'm one of those people who does exactly that. So I, I'm well aware of what a, a lucrative market it can be. Um, Stephanie, there is some talk that gardening is actually becoming more popular among the young folk, and that it is being driven like so much things are by so much things, so many things of this sort are by Instagram because people can take insufferable photographs of their garden and put it on the internet. I speak also as somebody who has taken insufferable photos of his garden <laughs> and put them on the internet. Is, is that possible? Is a gardening resurgence attributable to, to human desire to show off? Yeah, I think it's part of lifestyle. It can become very much a part of lifestyle. And the fact that the, the fair, you would, which is actually now why we're talking about this, is in my hometown. I tried to look up um, some articles on it today. Nobody's writing about it in Germany. <laughs> I'm, I'm really sorry about that. Except one story that what they what is really a growing market is cooking outside, cooking al fresco. This is yeah, a barbecuing. We call it in barbecuing. Australia. Yeah, but it's uh, cooking outside, so uh, im Garten kochen, which apparently is with this huge barbecues and all the accessoires you need for that. And that's again, that's part of the lifestyle. And then also. 
in, in Germany at least, and especially in Berlin, where people live in flats, a lot of people now get allotments. And they go into their allotments and they find their peace. So two things here. Oh, it's, yeah. it's quite cool. It's lifestyle. And also it gives you a bit of relief of the everyday hectic and the yeah the lack of space you have there are two different things here one is reconnecting with nature that's the allotment thing that's growing your own vegetables healthy living all that i mean i think vegetables come from the supermarket you know if you're going but uh, the <laughs> other thing lifestyle this is the absurdity where the house is full of furniture and the garden's full of plants the other way around it now you have the house full of plants and the garden full of furniture uh, because uh, people want to live out in the open air. And that is just lifestyle. And in fact, it's for those who have the money. Uh, farmers who are scratching a living, they're not much interested in growing hyacinths. That line about the house being full of plants and the garden being full of furniture, that's literally a line from a Flanders and Swan It is song, indeed. That's it? the one yeah. I think of. The garden, I can sing it to you if you like. The garden's full of furniture and the house is full of plants. Some other time, perhaps. We've <laughs> only got about a minute left. But, uh, I, I, I mean, I've been quite surprised since I accidentally moved to a house which had a very big garden by how much I have enjoyed it. And it is that... Um, it is that there's that contemplative aspect to it, isn't there, Stephanie? It's just sort of being, I guess, attuned to uh, the seasons and the sunrise and the sunset. The downside is that I, I barely used to notice winters, and now I find them incredibly depressing. Yeah, because suddenly there's no colour in your garden, right? Exactly. Yeah, that's very. Everything's sad. dead. Yeah, yeah. But no, it's it's as Michael said, the connecting again with nature and just putting your hands into soil and and very important. Yeah, yeah. it's yeah. it's it is it is very nice. But I don't have a garden anymore, and uh, so I can only plant my pots. But that makes me happy. That's true. So I came back now from my summer break, and there are no planted flowers in the pots in front of my house and I'm absolutely itching to do it oh go out and buy some go, whole, go yeah, to the garden house is nicer. fill them up well, it makes, and psychologically it makes lovely. you happier yes. if you have flowers around yourself it does and I, I, I will genuinely be spending I suspect quite a lot of this weekend uh, hoping that last weekend's actual sighting of a sparrow hawk in my London garden was ah. not a fluke I do hope to see it again and on that optimistic note uh, that does bring us to the end of today's show Michael Binion and Stephanie Bolson thank you very much both for joining us at Midori House the show was produced by Fernando Augusto Pacheco, researched by Anna Savetska, and our studio manager was David Stevens. Music next at 1900. It's Monocle on Design with Josh Fennett. There's more on the day's main stories on The Daily at 2200. I'm back with Midori House at 1800 London time tomorrow. I'm Andrew Muller. Thank you for listening. 